You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Hello, and welcome to our Twitter space. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Stephen Ruder, Digital Communications Officer for the U.S. Institute of Peace. The United States Institute of Peace is a national, nonpartisan, independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. I have just a few housekeeping notes as we begin. This conversation is being recorded. If you speak, your voice and Twitter handle will be part of that recording. The recording will be made available for replay on Twitter for 30 days, and we'll also publish it as part of our USIP events podcast series, which is available on our website, usip.org and on all major podcast platforms. We may use the recording on other platforms as well. We want to hear from you. Uh, we have received some questions from our speakers for our speakers in advance, uh, and we invite you to submit questions for our discussion as you listen along. If you would like to submit a question, please send a direct message to at USIP or reply in the thread for this space, which we will pin in here in just a moment. We'll be moderating speaker access to keep the conversation flowing, so asking questions via DM or reply is the best way to get involved in the discussion. Let's get started. Uh, this space is the second in our series on protecting women's participation in peacebuilding, which we're holding in advance of a live-streamed public event on March 8th, International Women's Day. We're also holding them in advance of the deadline for nominating extraordinary women peacebuilders for our Women Building Peace Award. To submit a nomination, you'll need to register by March 8th, and you can find details about that process on our website. We are joined today by Billy Ford and Kin Lei. Billy Ford is a program officer on USIP's Myanmar-Burma team. He has worked on human rights, governance reform, and peacebuilding in Myanmar for nearly 10 years, having held positions with Freedom House, the Asia Foundation, and USIP, among others. Kin Lei is a women's rights activist and the founding director of Triangle Women Organization in Myanmar. She is dedicated to promoting the status of women in Myanmar through individual empowerment and structural reforms. This series as a whole is meant to underscore the importance of protecting and facilitating women's meaningful inclusion in peacebuilding, and this second session focuses on Myanmar. Let me turn it over to Billy now to kick off our discussion. Billy. Great. Um, thanks, Stephen. Um, and uh, thank you all for joining us. And hi to Kinlay. Kinlay, are you there? Can you hear me? Yes. Minglaba. Minglaba. Um, thanks so much for being being here. I'm um, Billy Ford, as um, Stephen said, from USIP's Burma program. Um, and as he said, I've worked on government, human rights, and peace building for um, about a decade now in Myanmar. And Kinlay was actually one of the first people I worked with um, in Myanmar when we were at Freedom House quite a while ago. Um, and has been a really close friend ever since. Um, We'll have some time to discuss your work later, Kinley, but I wonder if you'd like to give a, a brief, brief background on yourself and on your incredible career to kind of supplement what um, Stephen offered. Thank you very much, uh, Billy. So yes, I mentioned that you and me are like a brother and sisters. And when since we met in DC, in while you were working for the Freedom House. So yeah, and... For me, is like I work for Triangle Woman Organization, which is to promote the role of the woman in Myanmar uh, during uh, the transition to democracy. So I give capacity building trainings and other, you know, 
services to the women who are uh, survivors of the violence against women, as well as to promote the role of the women in leadership. So I give the capacity building trainings to the political party members, civil society leaders of women and other youth leaders as well. So at the same time, as you know that, uh, you know, because of our country situation during uh, 2011 to 2020, there are tens of issues to be handled. So we are also, uh, my organization is also uh, focused on the legal reform and policy reform. So especially for the women's and civil society uh, to be more uh, space in a transition. This is current, uh, what I have done previously, but currently I'm also working for the women's uh, issue or stay connected with the uh, women on the ground and working as well as at the same time I work in for the movement. So that's my story. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Kenley. Um, and I think for the bulk of the conversation today, we'll hear from you and about your work and your thoughts about women's rights and empowerment and um, gender equity in this new reality in Myanmar. Um, before that, though, let me offer very brief cliff notes on the situation in Myanmar for anyone tuning in who doesn't follow it daily. Um, so bear with me for two minutes while I run through this, and then we'll dive into the conversation after that. So, all right. So the Myanmar military took power through a coup on February 1st last year. Um, peaceful protests, um, mostly led by women, actually, began almost immediately after the coup. Those protests and other forms of nonviolent resistance continue now, but um, after the military junta began firing on protesters early last year, communities started to take up arms to defend themselves. This armed resistance has really escalated considerably over the past six months. In September, the deposed elected government, called the National Unity Government, or NUG, declared war on the junta, and since then, a multidimensional armed conflict has emerged. Local militias have cropped up all over the country and they conduct daily attacks on the junta. Um, and the junta has responded by committing horrendous atrocities. They conduct regular airstrikes on civilian targets and are burning um, entire villages to the ground. Um, and what may be a new low, there were reports from central Myanmar yesterday that the SAC, um, which is the junta regime, detained 80 preschool children and were using them as human shields. Um, according to ACLA data, Myanmar is the most violent conflict in the world, at least as measured by the number of armed clashes or attacks on civilians. Of course, the war in Ukraine is um, horrifying in a somewhat different way. Um, but because of the coup and the subsequent violence, the economy is in freefall, poverty is on the rise, there's fears of an impending famine in Chin State in the western part of the country. Public education is virtually non-existent, the internet is increasingly inaccessible because of censorship, Virtually all independent media has been banned or dissolved, and um, COVID-19 is raging unchecked in the absence of a functioning health system, and over 450,000 people have been displaced since the coup, which is on top of the hundreds of thousands who were internally displaced um, before the coup and over a million Rohingya Muslims who are in refugee camps in Bangladesh. Um, overall, the military hunter's control of the situation and of the country is shrinking, and is, um, it's actually losing territory to various armed groups um, the hunt has even withdrawn from remote bases and has gone as far as to arm the wives and children of its soldiers to protect their garrisons. But the resistance movement is composed of a diverse array of actors and is yet to really fully unify. Um, the deposed elected government, the NUG, is at the center of the resistance, but it is only one of many actors. 
Um, I'll be really curious, Kinley, to get your thoughts on the makeup of the NUG and what this means for the future of women's political participation in Myanmar and as well as norms for of gender equity. Um, um, but um, the, the opposition has really failed to unify in part because of the history of repression by Myanmar Buddhists against this majority ethnic group, against ethnic and religious minorities. Um, and it's, it's made it very challenging for the opposition to unify and kind of um, um, uh, succeed in this movement. So when we talk about gender equity in Myanmar, it's really important to identify the overlapping identities of religious and ethnic minority women um, who really face multiple forms of marginalization. Okay, that's enough from me. How about we turn to a conversation, Kinlay? So um, why don't we start by discussing the gender dynamics in the current anti-coup movement? How would you describe the role of women um, from the grassroots level to the NUG um, and their role in resisting the military junta? Yeah, no, as I'm a womanized advocate, so I'm very much encouraged and motivated to see the role of the women in the anti-coup movement. Because starting from day one, we women uh, leaders from the Commons Factory, teachers unions and student union, they start, uh, they roll out uh, on the streets and roll to lead the protests uh, in the beginning of the February 2021. And also, as you may notice that uh, CDM, civil disobedience movement from the government's uh, uh, staff, mostly are from the uh, healthcare sector. So they mostly are the also women and uh, they are still fighting and contributing to the movement till now. So the role of the women in general is very engaging and as well as in a leadership role. And, and, uh, and also in other different kinds of supports they are giving uh, to the movement uh, financially, morally, and, and at the same time, technically, they are working on everywhere. So they are supporting to the movement. So it is seem like uh, we are, this is the uh, amazing, uh, how can I say, the surprising uh, for being a woman rights uh, you know, activist. So uh, I really want to congratulate them here as our heroes of uh, of the movement and uh, they, their role and their contribution make uh, it's the key involvement in the movement, I can say. That's really encouraging. Um, I mean, you're an activist from the 1990s as a student leader. I wonder how you see this movement differing from um, the, the various movements from the past um, and whether the role of women is different now and um, what the consequences are for gender social for social norms around gender and gender hierarchies. Yeah, exactly. Totally different. I can say that in 1988 uprising, I was a first year university student. We did the protests and we also actively uh, participate in the movement. But we are just like a subordinate. The men are the leaders, and we are the followers. So, and the, and and uh, also the recognition of the the community or as a whole is very, uh, very little. So we are not well recognized, and there are some women uh, political prisoners as well, but their role as well not very prominent. 
uh, we can say that because this is, as you mentioned, that this is because of the social norms and our traditions and, you know, perception of the women themselves that they, they believe themselves as a follower. Uh, traditionally, uh, religiously, we are the follower, supporter to the family and to the husband. So that's why they, how can I say that? They define themselves. They are not associated with, they are not belongs to the politics. They are not belongs to the country situation everywhere. So that's why they are like a household, uh, you know, leaders or just a supporter. But, and another thing is in addition to this, uh, the patriarchy, and military dominance. As you know that we are under the military regime for over three decades. So as you know that uh, military is a male dominant uh, society. So they believe then that they are the, 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 how can I say, they are the most powerful people. They have to protect to the society. They have to protect to the, uh, the family. So that's why the perceptions and the belief of the community is also very much reflect to, to the role of the woman. But now, after, not now, I mean, uh, after the opening in 2011, the perspective and the, the eyes are open in a community level as well, especially in a civil society, women are more activated and uh, energetic to be in a leadership positions. And they did a lot of, uh, empowering program and capacity building program. That's why the the perspective of the women themselves is, uh, you know, changing. And as well as the community, uh, the the perspective and how can I say that the understanding about the gender roles and norms are keep changing. But slowly, slowly, it, it takes time. Thanks for that. And that, that places in it in an interesting historical context. I wonder, um, you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but just in terms of the role of civil society um, in, in this um, kind of social transformation process, I mean, you were obviously a part of this, but I wonder what your perspective on, um, on, on civil society's role in um, kind of furthering these efforts and sort of what is the state of women's civil society organizations and networks like Gender Equality Network, Women's League of Burma, Women's Organization Networks. Um, what, are, what, are they, what are they focused on now and how have the new conditions affected their, their operations and their objectives? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this question because, you know, uh, our international friends always ask me that, Oh, you women's leader from the civil society are very active compared with uh, other, you know, <laughs> uh, other sectors or public sectors or, you know, health sector or business sector. Uh, the other uh, sectors, women are not very much, uh, you know, have a, a opportunity to, like us because the, because of the international community, I can see like that in, in a, you know, opening and transition process, the international community and international assistance has a package of gender equality, you know, and other, you know, agenda. And also it make us more uh, access to gender equality issue, women empowerment issue, women rights issues. That's why women from uh, civil society are more, you know, active and also more, how can I say that, empower 
to be uh, how can I say uh, in a, a decision maker level. So yes, uh, compare with the you know previous time. So we women's groups are very much encouraging, and as you mentioned, that the the very prominent women's network and a woman platform are uh, united and work usually work together compared with the other civil society sector. So health, you know, labor, farmers, and other, we used to work together. Whenever there is an issue, we are ready to fight against. We are ready to work it. Now, after the coup as well, so we have to change our, uh, you know, platforms and network name for the sake of the security mm -hmm. because most of our sisters still living in our country. So, but although we change some of the platform name, but we stay working together. We stay connected together to, how can I say, to challenge the uh, the military hunter, as well as at the same time, we do a lot of advocacy and lobby work to the international community, including UN agency and international governments to support for the women who have been suffer violence and uh, other issues in the country and to support for the humanitarian assistance to take a very, you know, serious targeted sanction to the hunters, as well as we do a lot of report, we do a lot of interviews, so we usually work together in different issues. So we are the same before the coup and during the coup. So maintained a degree of solidarity. Um, yeah, exactly. It feels to, to a certain degree to be the backbone of civil society, given that it um, stretches across ethnic and religious divisions that and other parts um, seem to divide the community. I'm curious a little bit about, um, to talk a little bit about the role of women in um, Myanmar's numerous peace processes, if you could call them that. Um, so I guess Myanmar's undergone five or six versions of peace processes to resolve um, the 70 plus years of armed conflict of which the current um, coup and subsequent violence is um, you know, one in a long series of, of conflicts. Um, but it seems to be kind of a, a perfect case in point of um, the failures of peace processes that are, you know, not adequately inclusive. I mean, across various forms of identity, ethnicity and religion, but also um, um, in, including women in these processes. I mean, it seems as if um, if there's ever evidence of the necessity for inclusivity in a peace process, this is um, a, a, a perfect example. I mean, essentially, it seems like the peace process had been built upon a series of concessions to armed leaders, obviously all men in this case, which had enabled for these really tenuous um, ceasefire agreements that um, were built upon business concessions that led to um, you know, lots of illicit activity from narcotics trafficking to human trafficking and arms and um, natural resource extractions. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, I wonder your thoughts on this as we start, start to see in Myanmar a, sort of an emergence of a new sort of national dialogue process emerging. I mean, the NUG has essentially established this national dialogue platform, the National Unity Consultative Council, which is intended to be this space for a essentially what's never happened in Myanmar, which is a nation building dialogue. Um, and it's um, 
uh, it's kind of an interesting thing to watch because it's the first, I guess, peace process in a sense that has not included the Myanmar military, um, you know, an institution that's built upon misogyny um, and patriarchy. And um, so it seems from the, from an outsider's perspective that this offers a really interesting opportunity to kind of compare and contrast and to, to observe a peace process that is to a certain degree inclusive um, and includes um, many of the women's rights organizations that you've mentioned. But I'm curious your reflections on that. Like what um, do you have hope that this new NUCC dialogue will help to um, bring about um, a unification of the, of the nation against the regime? And um, what are the implications for women's political participation um, after this dialogue, given that the NUCC is a much more inclusive platform than past efforts to achieve peace? Yes, uh, Billy, you are right that, uh, you know, NUCC is trying very hard to be the most inclusive uh, policy platform uh, to not only for the peace process, but also for the federal nation building, federal democracy and everything to solve through that dialogue platform. So it also include not only women, but also in other different sectors and, uh, you know, like uh, activists and uh, protests and uh, strike, uh, you know, committees, everything. They, they try to be uh, include as much as they can. So I'm very much encouraging, I can say that, because it is just the beginning of the process. We have to work very hard to to convince them we are in the right platform, we are in the right track. So at the same time, so uh, one of the most encouraging thing is that in a, in this platform, to be more inclusive, they also give the gender quota for, for the women's group and other groups as well. So this is, you know, you, we believe that, uh, that although oh, some, you know, the leadership level are not invited the woman to to be uh you know in a leadership position or whatever in a space but we have to demand it we have to fight for it but now NUCC is already set up a quota for women issues and uh, women and other etc etc so that's why i'm very much optimistic this platform, but this is in a very beginning process. So it is hard to say uh, how much we can do or not, but it depends on us. The member of the NUCC and the member of the NUG and the members of the, uh, the, 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 how can I say that, pro-democracy, you know, activists, how we can work together, how we can tolerate each, uh, not each other, to have a better dialogue and to meaningful dialogue among them. So yes, and also as I already uh, always challenge to the uh, previous uh, peace negotiator or peace, uh, you know, how can I say, key stakeholder that women are already coffee makers. We are regarded and we are uh, said that uh, coffee maker, but we can be the policy maker and we can be the peacemaker. That's why, why don't you guys invite us and include us to the, you know, dialogue. So this is the lesson learned from the previous peace process. Uh, process. They don't include us enough. 
That's why it is the failure of the you know peace process, I can say. Let me just break in here very quickly. This is Stephen Ruder with USIP. Let me just break in to invite questions from our listeners. If you want to ask a question for Billy Arkinley, please uh, send us a direct message on Twitter or post in the thread for this space. Thanks, Billy, back to you. Thanks, Stephen. Um, yeah, Kinley, one other question about, um, or kind of discussion point about accountability and justice. I mean, the military has never faced accountability for its actions. I mean, there's decades of verifiable evidence of military atrocities. Anyone who's read the report from, I guess, 2001 or 2002, titled License to Rape by the Sean Women's Action Network, will never forget it. And is one of literally hundreds that painstakingly document military atrocities, including its systematic efforts to use sexual violence as a weapon of war. Um, the military right now seems to have determined that accountability will never come. And even if it does, they can manage it because their old partners and Russia and China and some in the region will always come back to extract natural resources and um, the money will flow. So I wonder your thoughts about this. Do you, um, what do you think the effect of this impunity is on mil the military's behavior? Um, and do you have any hope for justice and accountability, whether it's domestically or internationally? Yeah, you know, military is uh, still using the weapons of war for the rape and, uh, you know, violence. And uh, it's much more worse than the previous time. So in an interrogation camp, in the prisons, or in a, even in a community level, village level, uh, they did the camp rape and everything they can do. They can kill and everything they, uh, they can do. It is like uh, we have to stop and end the impunity of the military to get the the responsibility of what they have done. So in that case, the international community is the key role to put them to have a accountability and to end impunity because we are like a helpless situation. We uh, Myanmar people at least can do is that documentation for the violence uh, cases and submit to the IIIM and UN agency. That's the only thing we can do. But sometimes uh, for me personally, we are very much discouraged, discouraged to see the role of the UN, United Nations. So they are not very much encouraging the way they respond to, 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 to the, you know, the, the violation and the way they are uh, taking action to the military hunter is very discouraging, frankly speaking. So, but we have to keep trying. So international community without their support and without their, you know, how can I say that active participation, we cannot do alone. So in the previous 16 day activism, we, we make a, you know, slogan that end violence and impunity. We have to end the impunity of the military and this time. If not, the violations and, you know, oppression, everything to the women and vulnerable, uh, you know, kids were still happening. So it is not only our uh, duty of Myanmar people, it is also the responsibility of the international community and UN agency, I believe like that. Absolutely. Um... And one other question or discussion point before we turn, I know we're starting to get a few questions in, but um, 
related to this, I think um, there's um, we heard last Friday in the previous Twitter spaces that was discussing uh, masculinities um, that trauma in men um, is often uh, masked as aggression and women intimate partners often bear the brunt of that trauma. Um, And right now, I mean, we've seen just a mass proliferation of violence, the emergence of these local militias, Um, just an enormous number of people are involved in, um, in violence and highly traumatizing events. So um, this seems like a major issue for the future of the country and for any future effort to kind of transition and rebuild um, if the resistance is able to prevail. I mean, um, so I'm kind of curious whether you see this as part of your work of the future, whether, how can we manage this issue of widespread trauma, um, which could very easily manifest in another wave of widespread intimate partner violence against women or other forms of kind of the cycles of violence that we've seen repeatedly. Um, this seems to be just like uh, on a scale that that we haven't seen before. So I'm just Curious your thoughts about that. I know that there is kind of an effort within um, the U.S. government to try to kind of fund projects that are addressing trauma and trying to build the capacity to provide mental health and psychosocial support, particularly to displaced and conflict-affected communities. Um, But I wonder whether you see this as kind of a fundamental part of the um, transition process, um, um, in, in part because intimate partner violence, domestic violence in Myanmar is probably the most prevalent form of violence in the country and often overlooked, um, although you have, of course, worked on this issue for many years. So um, just wanted to see if you had any thoughts about that issue. Yeah, uh, definitely. This is the, the, the one of the key issues we have to handle it after, you know, you know in, in, during that transition period. Uh, yes, the... How can I say that the, the domestic violence, partner violence, and then uh, trauma healings that has been working as our organization issue for many uh, years ago. But now it's addition to that, uh, the, the mental health and trauma healing will be the, uh, the big issue. We, we have to handle it. You know, not currently we have to deal kind of issues uh, through, uh, you know, how can I say? Virtually, we have to consult some of the the, the survivor or some of the political prisoner who re- recently relieved from jail. Some of the family members, oh, oh, their family members have died or something, you know, uh, injury happened, and so we have to get kind of counseling and trauma healing currently. So, yeah. So, yesterday. I posted on my social uh, media, Facebook account that we all are sick in different way during that, uh, you know, during, under the COVID, uh, under the coup, you know, mentally, emotionally, physically, we are sick in different ways. So what we found out is that, yes, we have to work for the trauma healing issue, but at the same time, currently, we what we can do is that we can send our loving kindness to each other to show our empathy, to show our kindness, to show our metta to each other. Because at the, uh, on the other hand, uh, the military hunters oppression is very brutal. They killed every day. Now they killed a two years old girl recently who, whose mother was sentenced 
in uh, in jail, but two years old girl together with uh, her mom. But unfortunately, she is sick and she cannot have the proper treatment. And finally, she died. So you know, everyone is suffering the mental problems in different ways. That's why this is the biggest issue in our country that we have to work. Uh, you know, very seriously uh, in, in the transition. <clears throat> Thanks, Kim Lee. Uh, we had a question from the audience that was about how women who have suffered this violence are taken care of, but I think you you just addressed that in your remarks in Belize. Another question we had from the audience is um, whether you could talk a little bit more about how the Burmese people have been supporting women leaders and peace builders in general. Um. <laughs> yes, uh, let me check it. Yes, uh, in my uh, community, you know, I don't know how to say it. It's quite difficult for us to mention our traditional, uh, you know, practice that uh, our community is not very much, you know, like the... Uh, how can I say, Middle East or other things, but we are normally very kind to each other, polite to each other, very much and not, not very much, but they don't see the discriminations and, and uh, violence, uh, uh, how can I say, uh, very publicly, but at least there is there are some discrimination and, 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 and uh, violence in, in a community level or in a public life, but uh, what I can say is that uh, the women uh, leaders and are also, you know, like what can uh, in, in in other words, a uh, feminist and uh, uh, are accused like that. We are the how can I say that? We are the fighters. We want to get the rights of the women, and we are working uh, to liberate something like that. But actually, women's leaders are not like that. We are working for the society. At least we are working for the family, all the family members to benefit the, uh, the, the, the peaceful family and without having any violence or without having any discrimination in a family level, in a community level. So we are very much peace builder. So, but the narrative of the very, how can I say, conservative, uh, you know, uh, people, we are like a very much, you know, uh, Western products or something like that. Actually, we are not like that. So what we can say is that we, uh, how can I say that? We, uh, we do believe that, especially for me personally, I do believe that uh, there was, uh, as, my organization goal is to be the gender equal, just, uh, peaceful, uh, so democratic society. So that's our goal is. So that's why I do believe that we justice and truth must prevail in one day. So if we work together, no matter you are a woman or you are LGBT or you are a disabled, if we can work together, uh, our better future will be come soon. I believe like that. Sorry. Uh, another question that we had from the audience is kind of about what you were just talking about now, which is what gives you hope for Myanmar and the prospects for peace and equality there going forward. 
And then what can international actors do to be constructive contributors to that? Um, yeah, of course. Uh, sometimes it is, <laughs> I see embrace to keep asking for the, in, the support of the international community because we are the very poor country in terms of technology, so in terms of financially. So we have to ask for the international community support since the opening. And yeah, uh, currently the international support is much more needed in, in terms of to support for the, uh, you know, survivor of the violence, you know, especially, you know, under this very uh, difficult situation. So we cannot uh, support to the survivors or the women on the ground, although they ask for the assistance and, you know, help. Uh, we cannot <clears throat> do it because of the uh, limited a resource because of the security reasons or we cannot provide the safe house or you know mental health support or psychosocial support so if international community is willing to support us uh, you can directly support to the women organization or you can uh, this is like a financially and another way is that you can support uh, politically to how can i say to lobby and to push to their respective, uh, you know, uh, legislators to pass, uh, especially for the U.S. So Bama Ed will be coming soon, but it is in a delay. I don't know much uh, detail about the process. If we, if the U.S. can pass the Bama Ed, at least there are some, uh, you know, uh, you know, pieces to support for the uh, humanitarian assistant and other assistant. It will be very effective to push to their respective legislators to pass that law uh, immediately. It will be the very, uh, you know, uh, how can I say, huge support for us. Let me just add to that um, a few quick points. I mean, first, I would direct folks to the Myanmar study group report, which highlights, um, it's on USIP's website and kind of highlights a series of actions that the US government can take. Um, but I would also just kind of like to highlight a point that Kinley has been um, referencing, which is this, is, this is certainly a crisis and an unmitigated disaster. Um, but it is also kind of an historic opportunity, I think. And if it's treated just as a crisis, um, which I think some international actors are treating it that way, then the goal would be to resolve the crisis and return to the status quo. And I don't think that's um, necessarily the healthiest uh, approach to things and is a misreading of the, of the response from the Myanmar people. I think the radical transformation that Kinley has referenced at the outset here of of the social norms and the hierarchies within the activist movement immediately after the coup represent a, a transformation that should be, that can be leveraged. Um, and that if it is leveraged and maybe the NUCC platform is a way to do this right now um, into inclusive nation building processes that kind of transform or upend these norms of, of gender hierarchies and ethnic hierarchies um, then it has the potential to kind of transform this highly exclusionary national identity into one that is much um, more inclusive and has the potential not only to unify the opposition movement 
and um, and to kind of defeat this regime, um, but also to kind of set the stage for long-term sustainable peace and structures that enable for um, resolving conflicts in nonviolent ways. Um, so I think that's kind of a critical point here because there's so many actors who want to kind of push a dialogue between the Myanmar, the junta and the NUG or the resistance forces and with the objective of kind of returning to the, um, the status quo ante pre-coup. And I, I just don't think, I think that kind of misses the point and would eff effectively reify these, these exclusionary structures and social norms that have um, been really questioned through this activist movement and the, these dialogues that are ongoing within the NUCC deserve a lot of support because they pose an opportunity to sort of reorient this whole national identity um, and social and political experience uh, experiment that is Myanmar. Um, so that, that's the only thing I would just add to Kinley's yeah. comment there. Yeah, Billy, I, I, I would like to echo you that uh, we are not just asking for the dialogue. We are not asking uh, for the... Uh, release of the Dong San Suu Kyi's and other NLD leader, we will go uh, to be, uh, how can I say, we will fight till to get the gender-sensitive federal democratic country. So the process and the, the movement will take time. And uh, we say that this is not a, a to end only military hunter. We would, we would like to end any, you know, bias, you know, ideologies or you know perceptions of when to fight against it. So we do believe that we women are ready to fight against any kinds of bias or you know you know discrimination uh, together with the military hunter. So we will go together and we do believe that it will take time but uh, but what we you know truly believe that there's there's storm before the camp. So we'll keep fighting we will be ready for everything. So, but if we unite and uh, work together, we can overcome it. We do believe like that. Thanks, Kinley. Thanks, Billy. I think we'll have to end here because I know both of you have other commitments this afternoon. Thank you all for joining us for this space today. And uh, special thanks to everyone who submitted questions and to our speakers for their time and their comments. The recording will be available here on our Twitter account for 30 days, and we'll also be publishing a permanent recording on our website and as an episode of the Events at USIP podcast. Um, please tune in to the next space in our series tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern time on Ukraine, and don't miss our live-streamed event on March 8th, marking International Women's Day. And please follow our speakers, Billy and Kinley. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.